Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Senyard, President of Gospel App Ministries. Uh, We're in the middle of a podcast series. It's been over a year through the Sermon on the Mount. I hope that you've been following us and have enjoyed it. It isn't likely how you've heard it interpreted before. And I I think, I I hope we've convinced you, actually, this could be life-changing. This particular podcast is called Bad Fruit Are Us. Uh, You know, I think we've historically confused bad fruit with good fruit. We've switched them around, I think, or another way of saying it, what we think is good fruit today, religiously, biblically, and teach, may be biblically bad fruit. I think we're well-meaning. I think we're unaware. I think we've gotten confused. And unfortunately, so many expositors and theologians have followed, you know, I get it, pretty reasonable rabbit trails that have led us to confuse, you know, the utter simplicity of what Jesus was saying. So here's the question. What do you think the bad fruit are? Or... The wolves in sheep's clothing, or vice versa. What are the good fruit from Jesus' point of view? Or what the thriving, safe sheep look like? And I think you might be surprised. I'm not trying to judge well-meaning Christian teachers here. I think we've just made mistakes. For the most part, I think they're repeating what they were taught. And and uh, and those people were taught by others who were taught by others. And, taught by, and there's just been a single stream, I think, of confusion going all the way back for the first couple centuries. So I hope that we have clarified a different approach, what I think Jesus might really be meaning, and it is very different. Before we get to it, let's get the first word from our sponsors. We'll see you in a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, welcome back. Uh, Let's look at Matthew 7.15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits." All right, once again, we need to remember who Jesus is speaking to and why. He is compassionately concerned about the spiritual well-being of these new, unlikely Jesus followers, the poor in spirit, remember, on this hillside in Galilee, the Sermon on the Mount. So he would have them grow and follow. They're the first fruit of the church. 
Jews and Gentile, men and women, multiple races, everybody, every one of them were sinners, unbelievers, and yet loved by God. It's a head trip. And remember, he's speaking to that unlikely bunch of people whose fruit back then would have been considered bad by the professional fruit inspectors, the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus <laughs> blankets them with the favor of God. He, I think he's calling them good fruit because God made them good fruit. And so he's extending to them the covenant blessing that God gave to Abraham when God told Abram he was good fruit because God chose him. And frankly, he doesn't put any strings on that good fruitness. <laughs> and remember our formula, formula, you should do the Torah. I should do the Torah, but I haven't, I won't. And then Jesus ramps it up. Oh, I say to you that the Torah was a low bar, actually. The real bar is even higher. You should actually be internally motivated and driven to love God the same way you should and others the same way God does and all the time. But honestly, come on. You won't. I, I won't. We need a rescue. And Jesus says, that's why I'm here. We don't need a PowerPoint presentation. We don't need new prescriptions because we're not going to do them. We should, and we should work at it. Don't get me wrong, but we're not going to do those things and really, really, really have that internal motivation until the spirit, the spirit of Jesus in our inner being gives us power to do it. We get a new heart. And then the more we depend upon Jesus' spirit, the more love I'll begin to feel and do. Any other message, Jesus would say, is not from him. Any other message, frankly, is heresy. And it may sound good, but it's a destructive, different path. It's the path of the scribes and the Pharisees, well-packaged, like, like most counterfeits. And remember, scribes and Pharisees are going to ultimately kill and support the murder of God. So what would wolves look like in their midst? Again, Jesus speaking to the people on the, on the hillside. I'm going to suggest that the wolves look like the same wolves that came behind Paul in Galatia. They were you know, preaching that God only loves the ones who do these prescriptions of Torah enough. And if you don't do good enough, you really have no claim on the favor of God or his love. I, I think it's the same wolves on that hillside. The really good fruit news is that God extends his perfect, unhesitating love to the unworthy, the sinners, the unclean. They become his children, worthy and loved because of the power of his love. And all of that is purchased for them by Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's ridiculous good news. What do they need to do to get more love? Nothing. What do they need to do to reduce that love? Can't happen. No self-respecting wolf would ever tell that to sheep. Now, having said that, here are some historical explanations of this passage, what the wolves and the bad fruit look like. I think you'll find them familiar. So first, wolves are teachers who intentionally come into the church to sow discord, divide, confuse, to lead sheep away from Jesus. It's intentional, it's manipulative, it's evil. By the way, I have seen it. Uh, I've been part of churches where this has happened, where there has been an intentional attempt to uh, disrupt. I get it. And, and there's a warning there, and we should understand that. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about in context. Two, wolves are people that make a buck off of God's people. I mean, that's always around money and power. We've seen it. So many Christian leaders have fallen. I get that. But again, 
I don't think that's what Jesus is specifically referring to here. These are teachers of a broad category of erroneous doctrine. Yeah, heresy is heresy. So bad theology is everywhere. I think Jesus is focused on a single overarching heresy here. And fourth, you know, they present a context. It's on one side, too much love. God loves, 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 loves. On the other side, too much law. And so we need to figure out, uh, and that would be the wolves, too much love or too much law. And so the, the smart gospel play is somewhere in the middle spectrum. If, if you do too much love, you become libertarian or universalistic. If you focus on law and judgment, you become too legalistic. And, and both do bear bad fruit, by the way. But again, I don't think that that's what Jesus is speaking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. All those things are true, by the way. But yeah, I think, I think we missed the context, a critical point Jesus is making. All right. All right, let's uh, move to fruit, and not just wolves. Let's talk about fruit. Everybody's bitten into rotten fruit, rotten apple. Oh, my goodness, it's a terrible experience. So uh, what are the rotten apples? Some say that it's character issues, right? The scribes and the Pharisees are saying the right thing, but if you look behind the curtain, they're bad apples. If, if you only knew who they were, so do what they say, not what they do. Because they have emotional issues, they've got sexual issues, they're misogynistic, addictives, all those things. So look, if that's what Jesus was saying here, that bad apples, you know, do what they say, but not what they do. You know, wouldn't that disqualify David, Solomon, Balaam? By the way, in Balaam's donkey, in fact, the only one it doesn't disqualify is Jesus. Um, right? I don't think so. I think there's one other thing that he's talking about. Others suggest that the uh, Pharisees and scribes were scrupulous. So some say that, you know, it was their behavior. Other people say, no, their behavior was the highest of, of social standards of righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees said one person were highly scrupulous in their behavior. So it seems unlikely that Jesus' reference to fruits would focus on conduct. So other people say it's, it's actually their teaching. <laughs> well, so what? What's going on? Um, what is Jesus's point? Can we clarify it? Yeah, I, I think we can. And, and before we dig into that, I want to get another word from our sponsors. We'll be right, right, right back. All right. So did the Pharisees get it right by their words or actions? Did they get it right by what they said? Do what they say, not what they do? <laughs> you know, Jesus... Never lauds their teachings. They were consistent, but they were only scrupulous about their understanding of the law and righteousness. So let me ask, did they, the scribes and the Pharisees, did they love God and love others? Right, that's the two commandments. See, I would remind us that they will play a role in the death of God, the death of Jesus. Do you see them sacrificially dying for others? I, it's not recorded, but Jesus will. That's the nature of God's love. And just ask the people on the hillside, did they feel loved by the scribes and the Pharisees? No. Remember the Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan? The, the scribes' behavior was not biblical righteousness, and nor were their teachings. That's the point. It wasn't about their behavior or teachings. It was both. It was off the mark. And we get confused about the Torah. The Torah is amazing. It's good. And we should do Torah, Right. And that's part of Jesus's argument in the Sermon on the Mount is it's extremely good, but we're not going to do it. We haven't. We won't. 
I mean, the Torah, the requirements of the Torah should humble us, bring us to our knees, and each of us saying, then who can be saved? Who could ever get God's favor? But we're not wired that way. We get up, we try to do the Torah over and over again because we have been taught by the wolves and the bad apples that this is what we got to do in order to earn God's favor. But then Jesus comes along and ramps it up even higher um, to cause more people to be aware of their inability to do Torah. What Other than saying, you need to be perfect, as God is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. I know we try to interpret around that saying something about wholeness or some other word, but how, how do we be whole as God is whole? Either way, we're stuck with that verse and we can't do it. We need a savior. We need a rescuer. That's the point. Jesus is laying out the groundwork for what he's come to do. You need a savior. The scribes and Pharisees represent a mindset that we don't, need to, we don't need a savior. We just need to do a little bit more. If we were more pure, more right, more religious, we would finally cross the enough line and God would, would wearily say, at least you tried. <laughs> it's heresy. That's the point. All you need is need. And if you don't have need, it's heresy. And we hesitate to call this heresy because it seems like we're being critical of the law. It's just the opposite. We're being open-eyed about the possibility of any human doing the law. And so earning God's favor. So God sends his son because we, we don't need a coach or a mentor or another lecture or sermon or new guidelines. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. All we need is need. And most of the time we don't have that. So in context, very important, as we've shown time and time again, in context, Jesus is proclaiming that the relationship between humanity and God is not a function of your individual performance of any so-called right or right enough. It's a function of the right enoughness of Jesus that will be imputed to your languishing rightness account. <laughs> no Pharisee is going to make it. No scribe is going to make it, not by their own actions or righteousness or even well-meaningness, period. They can only make it when they see they're not good enough, run to Jesus empty-handed. Very hard for a priest of righteousness to do. So if you do what they do, or if you do what they say, you're never going to make it. You're not good enough. Your love is fragmented. It's abused and abusive by heavenly standards. Your brain tends to be selfish, manipulative. It can be pretty critical. Largely, it's not all, it's not all your fault. It's partly midbrain. To fulfill the real law, you must love God with all your soul and love others, including the unlovable and your enemies with all your soul. To do that, you're going to need a God-sourced power through the Spirit and your inner being, and God gets all the credit. You will need, you will not get this God-sourced power through good living, through tithing, through righteous works, going to church. All those things are good. Do them, but they don't hold the key to your experience of the love of God. The key is for you to, by faith, ask. It's so simple a child could do it. It's so simple a poor in spirit can do it. The people on the hillside, it's so simple. It is too simple for erudite scribes to do it or religious people. It's very, very hard for us to do it. So what's the good fruit? Well, it comes from a good tree. And what's a good tree in the Sermon on the Mount context? It's the new heart. It's the spirit within our inner being. It has God-sourced faith that recognizes it can't love or be loved without God's power and dependence upon it, and it asks for it. It's dependence. These heretical wolves prefer the sheep to just keep trying harder and harder. Law after law, right after right, hoping beyond hope that they will one day be good enough to get God's attention, must bless his favor. 
heresy. They would have you ignore the work of Jesus on your behalf or uh, minimize it. Yeah, Jesus died so that you can work harder. Jesus died so that you can choose. I mean, all of those things make so much sense. And yet, and yet, and here's their disguise. They quote scripture, good scriptures about things we should be doing. It sounds so godly, right? Growing sheep repent of their righteousness. They have learned to hold up empty hands to receive the righteousness of the heavens. Wolfish disciples, on the other hand, urge the sheep to lean into becoming more like Jesus, which is never specifically taught in the New Testament. But it does make sense. It just sounds so reasonable. But sheep disciples teach other sheep to be more dependent upon Jesus and the power of the Spirit. That's two different animals and two different fruit from two different trees. I mean, have you ever heard that? Uh, Here's a paraphrase of uh, Martin Luther from his commentary in Galatians. Here's a helpful image. Wouldn't it be absurd and enormous hubris for the thirsty, dry ground to even think about demanding rain from the clouds? Picture the ground holding up its empty, dry, and cracked hands skyward, believing that if it only did it right, held its hands up at 10 and 12 o'clock or 11 or 1 o'clock, or better, waved them up and down frantically in some liturgical exercise, believing that if it only did it right, the clouds would open up in a torrent of life-giving rain. No, hardly. The ground knows its place and humbly can only hold up empty, dry hands to receive the rain that God ordains to fall upon it. It's the same with righteousness. There is nothing that we can do that moves God to shift his original plan to rain righteousness down upon us. We must get it into our thick heads that we are not able to do anything by our own strength and works to win this heavenly and eternal righteousness. And therefore, we shall never be able to get it unless God himself, by mere imputation and by his unspeakable gift, gives it to us. So, my righteousness and my relationship uh, with Jesus, my uh, the love of Jesus towards me is not for me. I mean, I have some righteousness, right? I'm better than some. <laughs> On a good day, maybe I get I get to be a two out of ten, maybe less. Okay, or I can admit that, believe that, hold up empty, unrighteous hands, and receive righteousness from heaven and the love of God for me, not mine ever. Jesus's. That righteousness has already earned God's perfect love for me as I am uh, 2,000 years ago. But what about doing right? I mean, we've all read the verses we're supposed to do right, right? God commands, the Torah commands, the Bible commands. Yes, but it's largely an order thing. The wolves teach you that if you were right enough somehow, whatever that means, God would love you more, bless you more. But, you know... The good shepherd dies and imputes to you, gives you, shoves it into your bio, his righteousness and his spirit so that you can begin to feel his love for you and for others a little. It's a new alien god source motivation uh, given to you when you ask daily uh, that drives you to feel loved more, to love others more, to love God more. You begin to do right a little or a lot more. So they both are fo- both paths are focused on doing more right. One actually gets us there. Two different paths. The wolf's path just seems to make more sense to us. It's how we deal with humans, human relationships. I think that's why it's so wide and extensive within Christianity. So many Christians are are on that path. Um, so in that context, false teachers teach self-dependence to Christians. That That's a good thing. 
They do not tell you that good spiritual formation is to admit that you're not righteous enough. And and you should ask the Spirit to come and make you feel God's love for you and for others. Good shepherd discipleship is not initially about becoming more like Jesus. It's becoming more dependent upon Jesus and his power. Anything else is wolves in sheep's clothing. Anything else is bad fruit. And this heresy is pretty easy to pick up on, to tell you the truth. It's the lack of teaching that you don't need Jesus' power every day. Or you can say, I need help. Jesus, make me love. Make me be loved. I think by now we're picking up the flow of the Sermon on the Mount. We should be loving God and others and experiencing God's love for others, but we don't, not on our own. We can try to work harder and probably should. We can try to do Torah more and better enough, whatever that looks like, or, or and we can look up by faith into the eyes of Jesus, stop our flailing, and then depend more upon him. Faith is ultimately God's source too. It's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. You can't just choose to believe more or better. You can't but you can ask the Spirit to give you more faith. And, and that's what Jesus was talking about in an earlier podcast in the Sermon on the Mount, storing up your wealth in the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly vaults. That's pursuing God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's what following Jesus looks like. All right. We are quickly headed. We only have two more sermons left in our Sermon on the Mount series. And uh, the last one will be that familiar and so misunderstood parable of the two houses, right? One built on sand, one on the rocks. Oh, man, have we screwed that one up so often. Uh, I think you're going to be surprised. So please uh, check that out. Now, special new series starting February 12th. I'm going to launch into a groundbreaking three podcasts that look at love and romance. We're calling it What's Love Got to Do With It? from the Tina Turner song, Valentine's Day is on the 14th, so it'll be wrapped around that. We will look at love, biblically, from some unusual points of view, stuff probably you haven't heard of. Have you wondered how love happens in your brain or how falling out of love happens in your brain? You look at someone, you feel something good happened in your brain, you become kind of stupid, you know, no judgment, your heart rate rises, Um, your skin starts to sweat, you become OCD, you can't stop thinking about him or her. Well, what's going on? We're going to tell you. Lots of fun. Uh, I think it will help us understand love a little bit better, and we'll try not to get into the neuroscience weeds. Then, second podcast, we look at the ancient history of love. It is so interesting. Uh, How did the ancient Greeks and Romans viewed it? And Paul had to go and speak into that. I mean, did you know that the Romans were actually afraid of it? (laughs) Uh, And lastly, we're going to zero in on God's love. I mean, you've heard God's love is agape, right? Well, I challenge that. I'm going to suggest that God's love is actually perfect agape. There's an imperfect one. And it's perfect eros. And there's definitely an imperfect eros. Uh, You'll see what we mean. It is, uh, hopefully we'll blow the lid off the love of God. Okay, so what's love got to do with it? podcast from Gospel Rant, February 12th, 19th, and 26th. Don't forget the online journeys, the forgiving path, dance, good enough parent. Remember, good enough parent is totally free for frustrated parents of teens and tweens. 15 tips sent to you one a day for 15 days, totally free. Goodenoughparent.online. Check it out. Goodenoughparent.online. Now, before we go, Lent is coming up. Your small group, 
your uh, life group might be wondering about what study guide would be beneficial. May I strongly recommend one of our most popular engaged series, The Journey. Your group, I think, is just going to be thrilled with the approach, the materials. It'll be eye-opening, dialogue-oriented. Check it out at our website, gospel-app.com forward slash engage. Gospel-app.com forward slash engage. I'm also finishing a uh, quest adventure book for young teens, junior high age, primarily 10 to 14. It's a thinly veiled gospel presentation for tweens. Everything we've been talking about in this podcast, but put in a fun adventure allegory. Think modern uh, shot at Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. I'm looking for influencers, supporters, champions who want to come alongside of this project. Let me know. Bill at gospel-app.com. If you have ideas, let me know. Thanks again to lifeaudio.com for their support of this podcast. Check out the other podcast at their website, lifeaudio.com. So until we see you again, take heart, child of God. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? I mean, you are called by God, and aren't we all praying the big prayer, here I am, Lord, send me. So if we put two and two together, you've got a message to deliver, my friend. Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take, art to make, or businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. I use my mic like a machete, so if you don't like to get your toes stepped on or pushed off cliffs to finally jump on in with Jesus, I may be too much for you. But if you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or lifeaudio.com today.